The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. One of my secret agendas with radical personal finance (laughs) is to expose the world of financial advice to the light. And see what stands up and what doesn't. Now, it can be bad where we can point out some of the problems in the financial advisor world. Or as in today's show, it can be pretty cool. Today we get a chance to talk with Patrick Wren, a long-tenured financial advisor. We're going to talk about what it means to find your money's greater purpose. And most importantly, or I guess Most interestingly, not most importantly, but very interestingly, we're going to talk about some specific tools and strategies that you can use to leverage the power of your money to increase your charitable contributions, increase the money that goes to your heirs. And you know the only person that gets shorted on this deal? The IRS. Not about you, but I'm pretty cool with that. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and I'm your host. Thank you for being with me today. This is a show where we're all about living a rich life now and building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. But hey, guess what? You know what happens? If you do a good job of living a rich life now and you become financially free, most likely you're going to wind up with way more money than you can spend. So what do you do then? My guest today is a man named Patrick Wren. Patrick is a 69-year-old financial advisor. He's been a financial advisor uh, for over 35 years. And uh, the way we got connected here was his publicist contacted me. And this is a regular occurrence when you're a podcast host. You get lots of contacts from people wanting to to, uh, just talk with you about uh, wanting to to, to use the show as a a platform for them. And I turned most of them down. But uh, today, uh, I really wanted to talk with Patrick because of his tenure in the financial advice business and also because of his area of focus. He's written a book called Find Your Money's Greater Purpose, How to Make Your Legacy Count, which is a slim little volume that's just simply focused on giving you some tools and strategies and techniques that you can use to really enhance your uh, charitable opportunities. But Patrick focuses on working with people at that kind of traditional retirement age, 60s, uh, you know, probably 60 to 80 years old, and helping them manage their retirement income needs as well as helping them manage their charitable needs. And so you're going to enjoy today's conversation, especially if you have a bent toward the technical financial planning side of things. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, some estate planning strategies. We're going to talk about charitable remainder trusts and uh, grantor uh, we're just going to talk about a few different charitable remainder stress. We're talking about gifting life insurance policies. So if you enjoy some of these little techniques, uh, you're going to uh, enjoy today's show. Uh, 
Patrick is a good guy. And especially if you're a financial advisor, if you like the idea or the topic of financial advice, this will be a show for you. Not a lot of rah-rah, not a big business-making show, just very practical, down-to-earth experience from somebody who's been there in the trenches for 35 years as a financial advisor. Before I play the interview for you, I want to do two sponsors today. Number one is YNAB. You need a budget. Uh, Guess what? Budgeting is the fundamental foundation of all good financial planning. Even in Patrick's book, uh, we didn't talk about this extensively, but you got to answer the question of how much money do you need? How much is enough? How much do you need to, to, to spend each year? And guess what? If you don't know that answer, none of these techniques are going to work for you if you don't know what you're actually spending and you don't know how to allocate it. That's a skill that will grow over time, but you've got to start now. And the best way to start is with the YNAB. You need a budget budgeting software. This is what I use. This is what I use every day. I have a personal budget and a business budget. I budget all the money that's in the account using the YNAB software. That's as strong as an endorsement as I can make. Download a free 30-day trial uh, at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash YNAB. RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash YNAB. Second uh, sponsor of today's show is student loan attorney and podcast host, Jay Fleischman. Jay's been on the show a couple of times. Uh, If you have student loans, I would strongly recommend that you consider reaching out to Jay for a review of your situation. He is an attorney. Uh, both student loan attorney and bankruptcy attorney. So if you're in any kind of difficult, contentious case, or if you know anyone who is, feel free to connect them with Jay. He can help you on that. But most importantly, he's an expert at the student loan payoff options. Uh, And he's really done a great job of helping people establish the lowest cost opportunity and ways to pay that off. Check out his his podcast, The Student Loan Show, and also make sure to use the special referral link and you get $25 off an initial email consultation uh, at studentloanshow.com slash radical. studentloanshow.com slash radical. And here is the interview with Patrick. Patrick Wren, welcome to Radical Personal Finance. Thank you, Joshua. When your publicist contacted me about potentially bringing you on the show, uh, I usually say no to most of these inquiries, but I said yes to you because of the topic of this book that you've written, which I hold here in my hands called Finding Your Money's Greater Purpose, How to Make Your Legacy Count. And this is a topic that I've I've done short shrift to on the show. I'd like to have covered it more, but I just simply haven't gotten around to it. And I said, well, let me have a, an expert who's written the book <laughs> to share with us on the topic. So b- before we dig into the specific topic of the book, though, share with us a little bit about your professional background and the circumstances that resulted in your writing this book. Sure. I've been uh, a professional financial advisor uh, really all my adult career. Um, that spans 40 years now. And uh, I'm at the point of my life, uh, along with most of my clients, where uh, it's a little more reflective and a little more interested in what ultimate legacy we might leave. So really, the book is part of that for me. It is uh, what I referred to um, from time to time as, as my instructional manual to the next generation and uh, tells a lot about some of my personal experiences and, and my life and how financial planning has played a part in that to uh, enhance what I'm doing. Do you practice in this area as a specialty or is this more of, as you said, simply because your clients have gotten to this stage of life? It's kind of a natural growth process. I think it has um, developed into a specialty. It's a, it's a niche that I'm known for in my community. I work with um, 
uh, several nonprofits and their donors, and most of it has to do with integrating uh, mission with uh, those donors' desire to um, really enhance their situation financially, but also to see if what they're doing can be improved in terms of their own personal situation, their family legacy, and those institutions and causes that they care about, if that can be enhanced financially. And the answer is that it can in most cases. People can come out better financially when they include philanthropy in some of their plans, believe it or not. I want to talk about some of the the, the tactics uh, and specific strategies, but I want to start more with the bigger picture overview before we go below the horizon and, and dig into those things. Okay. Uh, is philanthropy something that's only appropriate for people to think about at a certain stage of their life? Well, I don't think so. I think, frankly, uh, today there's this whole group of social entrepreneur, the younger um, 30-ish to 40-ish um, uh, entrepreneur who has more of a social consciousness than Perhaps uh, my generation did. I'm I'm part of the baby boomer generation. Uh, we did a lot of whining early on, uh, <laughs> then went to. <laughs> We're kind of known for that, and uh, we complained about a lot of things. Um, then we went to work, and then after working for a while, we we realized that we could integrate some of the bigger picture issues uh, with our life's work. But to answer your question. I find younger people, frankly, uh, that generation of uh, Gen X and millennials um, are much more socially aware of what they might be able to do uh, at an at a earlier time in their life. Uh, it's been a surprise to me, frankly. Does this approach involve money and giving money, or is, are you simply talking about it just from the perspective of working? Well, it... it it involves giving money, but also involves giving uh, time and talent. I mean, I think you can you can do an awful lot um, without strictly looking at money. I'll, I'll give you a personal example. I've been involved with uh, Special Olympics. That was one of the uh, causes that early on uh, uh, kind of instilled uh, a wake-up call in me. And I got my children involved in it. I have two boys, and uh, I got them to volunteer. I, I got my employees involved in the program. And uh, these were my children were uh, preteen. They were in their, you know, years, I would say, was around six, seven, and eight. We'd go to the games, volunteer, spend the night. And uh, I think it instilled in them some values that uh, – are not necessarily simply financial. Where do you start in trying to figure out how to make your money count? Well, I think you start with uh, what is it that uh, the money needs to accomplish. Typically, it it needs to evolve into a nest egg or a pile of money that will support an individual, the family, and then eventually. Uh, institutions and causes they care about. So I would start with the idea of present and future cash flow. What does that really need to be? And then see what the number is that would produce that and how, how obtainable is that? 
Is that something easily obtainable or does the individual have to adjust a little bit in terms of their desires and objectives? Do you find in, in, in practicing this segment, because when I was a financial advisor, I had a few clients uh, who were entering retirement. That was my uh, my competitive advantage. I said, I'm going to be the, the 30-year-old financial advisor who specializes in working with 55 and 60-year-olds. <laughs> that, okay, okay. that way I could tell them, listen, your advisor is going to be retired when you are. Don't you want to work with me who's going right. to be here for your whole lifetime? I figured I could, <laughs> I could cut against my smarter, more experienced competition by, uh, by re, re, uh, uh, re, rephrasing the – the opportunity, but I didn't get uh, sure. deeply. I didn't have a, a broad client base of, of clients that I'd worked with on this topic for years. So, uh, I'd like for you to share your perspective, uh, specifically with specific s- situations and examples, to help uh, people begin with the end in mind to help see where they're likely going to be. So, when you're dealing with somebody who's at this kind of traditional retirement stage, do you find that? Uh, they want to spend all the money. They want to give it away. How do you find people approaching that that problem in their own situation? Sure. I'll give you a concrete example. Uh, I had a neighbor that uh, worked with uh, one of the financial institutions here in town for many years um, and was given an opportunity to retire early. This is uh, not unusual when uh, uh, you get to a certain stage. Uh, the corporations may want to... Uh, make an exchange of an older, more costly employee for a younger, lesser costly employee. And uh, we have we have quite a few clients that uh, were given that opportunity. So uh, the whole question was, was there enough there to support the lifestyle they wanted to? Uh, they were still relatively young. This was a couple. Uh, they had uh, two children who were adult children. So it, it boils down to a financial analysis to see if what is doable. I would tell you that for most of our clients, uh, they very much live within their means. Uh, it's just one of those things that, that has happened to us over the years. We've attracted that kind of client. So in this particular uh, instance, we worked with these folks. He retired about five or six years ago now. And uh, what is very um common in our particular practice is we're now working with those children and the grandchildren um, who don't even know us, frankly, yet, but we're developing a family uh, legacy plan such that the money is not going to run out based on uh, the way they're, they're situated. And what happens to the money with the other, with the future generations is part of our planning as well. Do you find uh, – talk to me about how people should think uh, or, or just talk observationally. How have you observed your clients considering uh, the value and benefit of transferring money to their um, bloodline, to their heirs versus the value and benefit of transferring money to external institutions with charitable uh, – Sure. With a charitable focus? Sure. You know, many times you can leverage um – because of the tax advantages of gifting and the fact that you can make a future gift, even one uh, that will occur after you're uh, long gone from this life and receive a current tax deduction, uh, the fact that that tax deduction actually puts money back into your pocket allows you to do some planning with respect to the family. The other big advantage we have today is that for a couple, 
we have about $11 million uh, that would not be subject to a state tax. So then the real question becomes, how much of that, let's just say it's right at $11 million, how much of that $11 million should go to family? And usually there's a number that does not approach $11 million. And if that's the case, then where should the rest of it go? And most of us have some form of uh, payback desire, let's put it, um, to our school or our church or synagogue or some institution that uh, somewhere along the line had uh, a beneficial effect on our life. And now we're in a position to maybe uh, give back and help that institution thrive. And in some cases, um, just survive, you know, if they're financially um, in not the best of shape. How do I decide on how much is the appropriate amount of money to leave to my kids? Uh, that's the uh, a, a very subjective question, I believe, and, uh, and uh, or a very subjective answer. And I would tell you that it differs tremendously within the family unit. Usually, and I tell people this, uh, fair is not necessarily equal. So if there's more than one, um, I would I would caution against automatically assuming that everyone should get an equal amount. And usually we find in family discussions with siblings, uh, they're okay with that. You know, you may have a, a professional person on the one hand that is going to have plenty of income and plenty of assets, ability to accumulate plenty of assets over their lifetime. And you may have someone else who is not in the same position, maybe a teacher, maybe in the ministry, maybe has some special needs, uh, maybe just hasn't gotten their act together. And uh, usually siblings are, um, I find, very aware of that and, and are okay with it. The ones that are the uh, the successful ones are okay with helping out uh, the other sibling financially. That usually means that the money needs to be somehow managed uh, beyond the control of the uh, sibling that is the one that needs the help. Because if they got their hands on the money right away, uh, it it could be a disaster. You know, you can help one person by giving them money immediately, and you can also hurt a person doing that. So I would tell you, you have to spend a lot of time trying to figure that one out. What what would you look for to understand whether you're helping or hurting somebody? Well, I would look at a little bit of history. I would look at what the expectations are going forward. Um, certainly health and mental condition are all uh, factors that I would look at. And uh, then that would determine the timing of these, um, of the gifting. Uh, it could be, it could occur while the parents are still here and, uh, you know, sort of a dry run to see how that would happen. It might have to occur after they're gone because they need the money currently. So I would tell you every situation is quite, quite different. Um, but what determines it, I think, is mostly history, personality, um, what is their current occupation or profession, uh, you know, what is their 
Uh, are they married, not married? Are they, uh, what are their plans for their life? Let's talk about formal financial planning. And I'd love just for, if you're practicing in this area, you must have some interesting stories. So think back over the last couple of years of your practice and choose for me uh, perhaps a very interesting case that you worked on uh, where clients came to you, started talking through this process. Uh, you did your fact-finding process and then you put together a financial plan using the tools of financial planning. Describe the case, describe the scenario, and describe the solution. And, and, and please don't be scared to be specific with technical details. My audience is interested in that topic. Sure. Let me tell you, uh, uh, let's call him Joe. Okay, so um, Joe was uh, someone that uh, showed up at one of our, we do donor workshops for charities, and and um, Joe showed up, and he was what I would call a modest uh, uh, donor, uh, at least in the, in the uh, pyramid that the charity had. He was not one of their uh, top uh, benefactors, and uh, he came and heard some things about uh, uh, how he might do some charitable planning and what it meant, uh, what it would mean to him. And uh, he decided to take some action. He uh, he changed the beneficiary on his IRA. He um, changed the beneficiaries uh, in his will. And uh, he had some stock and made a charitable contribution uh, to a trust, uh, to a charitable uh, remainder trust and got a tax deduction for that, increased his income currently but by about 20 to 25%, somewhere in there. And as a result of that, he was able to double the gift that he was making to the institution. In this case, it was a hospital. So I always tell charities, you know, if you do it right, you can increase current giving uh, with planned giving. And that was a perfect example. Uh, Joe died a couple of years later. The children showed up. And uh, this was a while back when the tax laws were a little bit different. And, uh, you know, they, they were very interested in why Joe had uh, made this, uh, these gifts to, uh, it was to the hospital, to his church, and to his school. And as a matter of fact, the gift to the hospital was over $900,000 was the largest gift they had received. These were gifts up to that uh, point. These were gifts as given as part of the estate this, distribution, or these were gifts, yes, lifetime exactly gifts? Right. Okay. That's exactly right. Okay. That's exactly right. During the uh, estate distribution. So the children, as you might imagine, uh, questioned the motivation behind this. Uh, they felt maybe they were out a million dollars in inheritance. And uh, so we sat down and we showed them a before and after. And as it turns out, uh, they actually received more uh, inheritance than they would have before because of the leverage that uh, was obtained from the uh, tax deduction and the fact that that was used to um, make some other interfamily transactions. And uh, they actually came out about 30% better in their inheritance Uh the charities received about a million dollars. Well, I think it was a million three total. And the only loser in this deal, of course, was the IRS. And uh, that's a concrete example I use a good bit, uh, both with families and with charities, to help them understand that the tax leverage can be tremendous. It can benefit 
the individual, in this case Joe, got more income, got a tax deduction, can benefit the family, they got more inheritance, and it can benefit the charity. Explain the the, the tools uh, involved. Uh, did he set up? Uh, did he give? Uh, what did he give? When did he give it? And why did he use those tools? He uh, it was charitable remainder trust, uh, primarily to produce more income and a tax deduction. Uh, there were gifts through will and IRA, and there was um, a trust that was set up for the benefit of the family into which the he put in some life insurance as a result of the tax deduction that was obtained from the gifts. There was more discretionary income uh, that he could use and replace uh, to the family those gifts that were going to go to charity. So let's walk through, through the life insurance. Perfect. That's exactly sure. what I was hoping. And and I know that yep. this is. I know yep. normally you're not accustomed to talking about necessarily the technical details, but uh, it's it's of interest to my audience here. Uh, so what is a okay. charitable remainder trust? How does it work? And why did what did it do for Joe? And what did it do for the charity? Okay, uh, Joe transfers uh, stock into the trust. He names the charity as the beneficiary at his death. This was stock, publicly traded uh, stock, or stock of his own private company? Publicly traded stock with very low dividends. Okay. So under 1% at the time. Appreciated Transfers stock? Transfers that in. Sorry. Yes, okay. appreciated stock, mm-hmm. low cost basis. So right. if he sold it, uh, he was very reluctant to sell it and pay the tax. Mm-hmm. Kind of a classic, uh, what you look for uh, in these types of transactions. So he transfers the stock into the trust, gets a tax deduction. This is a function of his age, life expectancy, uh, that and the amount that he's putting in. So he gets a, a handsome tax deduction for that, current tax deduction. Now the trust can sell that stock without paying any tax, reinvest those proceeds into some income-producing property, stocks, bonds, whatever they happen to be, and uh, produce more income for Joe. So now Joe's income has gone up by 20, 25%. He got a tax deduction in the front end. So those are the benefits to Joe. And let me clarify, the reason Uh, why that's permitted is because this is a charitable remainder trust. So the remainder of the account will transfer to the charity at the time of Joe's death. At his death. Okay, so now uh, you've disinherited the children by that amount of money. Mm-hmm. In order to um, replace that, real quick, Patrick, do you remember? You, or do you remember? Yeah. Or are you willing to say about how much he put in and about how much his income was from it? Uh, there was, there was. Uh, oh, geez, I'm trying to remember. Ballpark. Uh, yeah, I think the trust. I think the trust was in the neighborhood of nine hundred thousand dollars. Great. And uh, the income would have been um, in the thirty-five to forty. Uh, which is substantially more than it was before. Uh, does that answer the question? Yes, it does. And the reason I'm probing on this okay. is often – so the, sure. the world of estate planning, we, we've we've done a good job as financial advisors of trying to keep a sense of mystique here. We feel it's, it's one of those ways where we try to pretend we're better than everybody because we, we – well, we know how to do estate planning. But I want to demonstrate to people that it, it's very accessible and uh, – 
certainly you don't need to be you don't need to have a hundred million dollars to do good estate planning. Sometimes if you're dealing with a couple million bucks or you know somewhere in that that modest seven figure range, you can still use some of these tools and strategies to substantial effect. That's why I'm asking you know for the details sure, to demonstrate sure. that to my and audience. If we have time, I'll give you a very simple one um, uh, after we talk about this. Cool. But now you, now you have a tax deduction, you have increased income, so. Um, Joe increased his his current giving to the charity. The fact that he got a a tax deduction and increased income allowed him to fund a life insurance policy into a trust. And the reason you would do the trust is to keep it out of the estate. Um, And so you replace the, the lost inheritance with the life insurance, which is now in a trust and does not get taxed at all in terms of the state taxes, and that goes to the children. It has replaced the wealth that is going to the charity. So who's benefited here? Joe has benefited from increased income and less taxes to pay. The children have benefited in that it actually, he replaced, uh, the the insurance uh, was, was more than what the inheritance was going to be. So that, you know, he was afforded that opportunity because of the tax deduction and the increased income. And then the charity received the million dollars at his death, million three at his death. So to me, it's a win, win, win. Um, obviously Joe was charitably inclined. He came to the workshop because he was a donor. Um, so there was motivation there to begin with. And yeah, and and so the reason we go through it in in detail is because it demonstrates how by locating, by looking at an asset structure, and it's impossible to teach. Uh, the reason the scenarios are useful is you can't teach this subject and say, "Well, you should always do this," because you have to look at the asset. If, if you have, for example, okay, if the stock is privately held versus publicly held, that's going to make a difference. If it's appreciated stock, Absolutely. if he has a low tax basis in it, he paid a little bit of money and now it's worth a lot, that's very different than if it's depreciated stock. He paid a lot of money for it and now it's not worth much. So in that situation, oh, you, would, you would never put that asset into a trust. You'd sell that asset and if you wanted to convey some money to the charity, you'd always sell it, take the loss and then and then transfer it. So the, the these scenarios, I think, are useful uh, to to demonstrate to the to the interested layperson that here are some actual techniques and everybody wins in that scenario. Joe gets more money. He fulfills his charitable goals, which are important. The charity gets more giving now and more and more money at the at the termination of the trust. The children have their inheritance secured and they get more money. Uh, and then the financial advisor wins and provides a valuable service uh, and you earn earn money on on the transaction. But everybody wins. The only person that loses is the IRS, but I don't feel so bad about that. <laughs> I feel pretty good about well, that. Well, <laughs> You hit the nail on the head. I, I think most people would agree with you. So, um, is there anything else we can learn from Joe's example before you go on to the to uh, the, the other example you mentioned? Well, I think what you can learn is that um, in in most cases, um, people are not aware of techniques that would uh, increase uh, and benefit them, increase their uh, financial well being, and benefit them only because uh, no one has brought it to their attention. And uh, if you, if you uh, have been around for a while, you know as well as I do that many people uh, feel that 
their situation is well in hand. They've done some planning. Uh, they don't need any more. They're, they're resistant to having someone take another look. But uh, in most cases, if they haven't been exposed to some of these techniques, um, they're really doing themselves a disservice, I feel. And um, I can tell you there, there are numerous cases where we've reviewed documents that were outdated in terms of uh, what clients thought their desires uh, were reflected in these um, estate documents were not the case for various reasons. Right. And I know for me, it, people often build this, this, um, this, these barriers because, frankly, as, as a financial advice community, um, many of us have abused – people have felt abused by us, who, we who are financial advisors. And, and you know, in, in the scenario that you explained, there's the, there's the uh, appropriate placement of an appropriate life insurance policy. And so what uh, a new financial advisor or a new insurance agent would do is say, listen, let me tell you about the islet. Let me tell you about how an, an islet, an irrevocable life insurance trust works and looks so great and you can put a life insurance policy in there. But uh, a new life insurance agent is not going to know how to structure a charitable remainder trust and is not going to have the connection. So what happens? <laughs> that we who are new in the business, we go out and burn a bunch of bridges for people and they don't want to hear about it. And then they got to come along down the road and say, well, listen, okay, hold on a second. Let's talk about a specific situation. Let's run some math and let's see if there's a way that we can use these various techniques and tools that are at our disposal in an intelligent way. Uh, and in the example that you gave, it's not the life insurance policy that did the magic. That's just one way of assuring the estate for the kids within that, within that trust. And the reason the life insurance policy works so well in that example is because Joe already gave away um, all the money. He put the money or he gave away a lot of money and he gave that away into the charity. But with a life insurance policy, he just needs to buy some – he needs to buy some money to transfer to his kids at the date of death and within uh, an irrevocable trust, he can go ahead and make the transfers in there that are sufficient to pay the premiums and he can buy some more money for his kids with the use of the life insurance policy. But it only worked because of the other offsetting tax savings. And so that's why uh, when I – frankly, I mean – Patrick, the reason you're on is because you're working in this area, and this is the type of conversation I have been wanting to expose the radical personal finance community to, and I haven't – you know, too many financial advisors are stuck behind their compliance department. They can't come on and talk about these things. Uh, so I think it's valuable that we can share this with people uh, in a useful format. Well, Joshua, we make a good point. I think that what happens is in so many cases is that um, advisors uh, lead with techniques. And uh, before they really have a full grasp of the situation, and it's so helpful uh, to to know uh, everything that you possibly can about that client or potential client, including reviewing tax returns and documents. Uh, but even more importantly than that, what are their desires? What what do they really want to accomplish in life? And um, once once that communication develops, then these techniques just kind of fall into place. Right. Um, and you don't need to, to, like you say, hammer on an islet. It, it may be appropriate. It may not. In this context, it was because, as you mentioned, some money was freed up. And I liked what you said about buying some money. That's exactly what happened here. 
Yeah, and and Joe was insurable. I mean, if Joe hadn't been insurable, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah, you had to find another yeah. solution. Yeah, doesn't mean yeah. it. It doesn't mean that there's not an option. It just might mean you're you're transferring a policy that's elsewhere, or you're 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 using another technique. Absolutely, there may be one. Yeah, if there's an existing, you always want to take the the lowest cost option. Amen. Uh, and and if there is one already existing, restructure what what is already available. Yeah, give us that next example, Patrick. Okay, uh, so you don't have to have uh, tens of millions of dollars. Uh, uh, a colleague of mine who uh, works in the plan giving area uh, at the charity uh, has told me over the years that one of his uh, favorite situations is to find um, one of their uh, donors who is elderly, who is single, uh, and um, either widowed or, or never married woman uh, who has an interest in the charity, owns a home and has an IRA. And he talks to them about donating the home currently. You can donate your home, live in it for the rest of your life, retain an interest to live in it for the rest of your life, get a current tax deduction for this gift of the home. And uh, even if you're in the lowest tax bracket, 15% tax bracket or so, uh, this gives you a tax deduction that would allow you to take more money out of the IRA uh, without paying tax on it. So it's it, it accomplishes very much what a Roth IRA would if you were to take withdrawals uh, without having to do the conversion and pay the tax. So that's a very simple example. There are a lot of people out there with a house and an IRA, and uh, if they don't have beneficiaries, um, this is a technique that works pretty well uh, in those cases where they're going to live there for probably the rest of their life. They can get the current tax deduction, the charity gets the home, and they can increase their income and maybe go take a trip as a result. And then... um... Yeah, it's a, it's a good example. What is the mechanism? Uh, would you uh, give donate the house to the IRA and retain a lease? What's the mechanism that you would use? Uh, a you life donate, interest in it? yeah, you, you do it. Right, life interest. You donate the house to the charity, retain a life interest. And a life interest for uh, for the layperson is a legal right to make, to live in the property for the duration of your life. That is correct. Let's talk through, uh, in your book, you provide just a few pages where you talk about the sampling of strategies. Just want to talk through these at a, at a high level. Um, tell me sure. about what a charitable gift annuity is and how it works. Uh, if you're familiar with a, with a commercial annuity where you just transfer uh, money in return for an income and get a current tax deduction, uh, you don't get a current tax deduction in a commercial annuity with, a, with an insurance company. This would simply be uh, the same concept, only the charity would act as the insurance company. They would guarantee you an income for the rest of your life. Um, you would make a, a donation of, let's just use a, a simple example where you, you donate $100,000 and maybe you get $5,000 for the rest of your life. You might get a fifteen dollars or $20,000 current income tax deduction, depending on your age. And um, the charity would guarantee that income for you 
or you and another beneficiary, typically a spouse, for the rest of your life. Uh, given low interest rate environment we're in, uh, many times this is a this is an attractive option for people that are in, that are in their advanced years, need more income, and could benefit from the tax deduction as well. Tell me about the pros and cons of leaving my retirement plan to charity. Well, I would tell you that the the pros are are pretty strong. Um, the retirement plan is subject to both income tax and estate tax. And um, one of the advantages of leaving uh, the IRA, there are two options today. One is you can leave leave it at your death. Um, that would avoid the estate tax if you're in a state um, taxable area. And it would certainly avoid the income tax on those distributions. Your beneficiaries are going to have to take that money out and it will be taxed, so it'll avoid all of that. The uh, so it's one of the best assets to give away. I would tell you that it is preferable uh, in many cases to naming a charity in your will. So a very easy thing to do to just add charity to your IRA. Also, we now have clarification on what's called the charitable IRA, which is if you're over seventy and a half and you're taking what are your required minimum distributions, you can make a gift to charity and it will satisfy that um, required minimum distribution to the amount, up to the amount that you give, and it will not affect your adjusted gross income. Now, that, that's a small item that a lot of people miss, but it will not, if you were to take the money out first, it would increase your adjustable gross income, and then you make contribution to charity, it would not be as effective as doing the charitable IRA directly to the charity from your IRA. And that's a current gift while you're alive. What's a donor-advised fund, and why should I consider using one? Donor-advised fund is set up by uh, either a charity, and today the largest ones are financial institutions. Uh, Fidelity, Vanguard, and Schwab are the three largest um, donor-advised funds. The advantage is you make a gift today to the donor-advised fund, and then you can later designate the beneficiaries um, that would receive these gifts and the timing of them. This is used a lot when you have an event uh, like a sale of a business, or I don't know too many people that have won the lottery, but uh, if you were to come into sudden wealth and you needed a tax deduction today and you were charitably inclined, uh, you could make this contribution into the donor advised fund and then take your time uh, deciding which charities would benefit. Know full well, though, that this is a gift. Uh, you are getting a tax deduction today, but ultimately this money is going to charity. Right. And that's let's just hammer that point home. A lot of people can might be thinking, well, there's some way that I can manipulate this system. You know, I've, after all, I've heard if I just set up a trust, then I get tax advantages. And of course, a trust, you know, I can control that. So that so answer is no. Um, you the, the law is very clear. 
when you get a deduction, it's because you have abandoned your control of the money. You've made a legitimate bona fide gift. So at the foundation of your planning, you've got to have that as an intention. Now, of course, there are some techniques that can be implemented to allow you to make sure that your goals are furthered. You can write a trust document in a way that's going to get you much closer, but uh, you are actually giving money away. You've got to actually give it away, and that is going to be an irrevocable transfer. Uh, so some techniques and tools give you a little bit more control than others, but you are giving money away. You can't just – these are not games that we're playing here, uh, just making stuff up. It's a, it's a proven out, uh, developed body of work uh, where, yes, you can leverage the money, but you got, you're actually giving it away. That's exactly right. Um, finally, uh, as far as technique, and then I'm going to go back to big picture. Uh, so I've got, a, okay. I've got a life insurance policy, and I'm sitting here looking at this thing saying, well, I don't really need it, uh, and I, I don't, my wife doesn't need it, my kids don't need it. Uh, what should I do with this thing? Talk to me about the idea of, of using that life insurance sure. policy. Sure. I think this is one of the most overlooked areas uh, there is. There, there are plenty of folks out there that uh, took out a life insurance policy when they were uh, maybe younger and, and had a, had a mortgage and children to educate and, and, uh, spouse, uh, to take care of if they stepped out of the picture and they paid on this for years and years and years. And now they're older, they have some wealth. Um, there's, there's not a need for the insurance for any income replacement. There's not a need for the insurance to pay any estate taxes, for example. Um, a gift of that insurance policy to a charity is, is, uh, I think a tremendous uh, leverageable tool. And the reason I say that is you get a current tax deduction for whatever value is in that policy, typically cash value that's in that policy. Uh, and that that's a shortcut. There's something a little more complicated than that. You don't want to talk about the interpolated terminal reserve? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to talk about the interpolated terminal reserve. <laughs> But you do have to get a, a, a qualified opinion on it and, and get, um, you know, make sure that your CPA understands that uh, what that is and is willing to sign the tax return for that value. Um, there's not huge risk in this, but there is, uh, you know, some difference of opinion from time to time. So you do have to take, you do have to get that analysis performed. Um, but once you do that, you get that full tax deduction. You can either continue paying premiums if that's what you want to do. You can gift uh, an equivalent amount of the premium to the charity. They can pay the premium. We know for sure, uh, you know, everyone's going to die. So there will be a point in time when the charity will benefit from this. Or you can just take a paid up policy. Charity can take a paid up policy and just wait. Now, the charity can also access those um, um, uh, cash values if they want to, but typically that's beyond your control and, and really not um, something that, that would affect you. But I think these, this is one of the areas that is overlooked both by charities and individuals. A lot of people just cancel their policy. They, they pay a lot of tax. The net effect is not as good as if they donated it. 
Yeah. I'm with you. This is a particular passion of mine. I, one of the reasons I started Radical Personal Finance was I got sick and tired of hearing financial pundits say, Bob, you have a whole life insurance policy? Just cancel that thing. <laughs> I got tired of screaming <laughs> at whatever radio yeah. or speaker I was yeah. hearing and saying, you are stupid. That is absolutely the wrong yeah. advice. Stop and look and, and, and find out if there's a way, uh, something effective and, and efficient that it can be done. I mean, you get a uh, – this one, I mean, you get a, a, a nice – healthy policy and, and exactly what you said. You transfer it to a charity. Let's say you continue to pay the premiums. Those are deductible. Now you've turned your premiums from a non-deductible uh, expenditure to a deductible yeah. expenditure. You've received a deduction for the value of the, of the policy, the cash value or, or the ITR. Um, you have the, the charity has the uh, – if they need the money, of course, they could always cash it out um, or uh, they could even just use it as a form of collateral. They could take a loan against it. They could pledge some of the cash value. Now you might be able to take a charity from a poorly funded charity and now they know they've got a solid asset behind them that could be a sizable asset and then the, 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 the board of directors there could possibly take that leverage ability and, and use it to leverage their own finances by having such a healthy asset backing up their, their plans. Uh, and then at the end of the day, it's going to pay out. Uh, I mean, it's a really, uh, it's a really under talked about option. And I get, yeah. So you, so what you just went over is exactly the reason why I started Radical Personal Finance because I got sick and tired of people not who, who didn't know how to use some of these techniques not discussing them in public. Well, I tell you, uh, it, it's refreshing to hear someone that feels the same way I do about this. This is one of those uh, well kept secrets, and a lot of people. Uh, make make a mistake in this area only because they don't get advice about it. And um, just as you say, go ahead and and um, cash it in. And it's that's that's the last option. I think uh, you know the unless you're in dire financial uh, straits, I think yeah, these other options, especially the charitable one, is 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 very very uh, dynamic. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh- Patrick, let's go back big picture. What have you learned about your own finances uh, and your own plans for your money since starting to work more heavily with clients in this space? Well, I guess the process has been uh, one of – it even goes back to uh, you know my father and, and some of the uh, values he taught me. He was a very conservative guy and, and – uh, was an accountant by background, but but even with that, um, I found out later that there were some things that if if um, I would have had the opportunity, I could have helped him uh, a great deal, enhance his wealth uh, more than he did. He did okay, but he could have done really well. So it starts with that, and uh, I vowed uh, to study enough about this area. It attracted me uh, such that I could take advantage of that knowledge and not make some mistakes and continue to um, build wealth and and live a good life. And and, uh, once I got to a, a point where that looked like it was pretty assured, I would, uh, uh, devote myself to what I'm doing now, which is pretty much helping charities um, thrive financially. I think it's important that uh, they grow their endowment reserve funds so that they're around. And a great example was in 2000, 2001, and again, 2008, and 9, 
those charities that had reserves that could call on those uh, funds um, did fine. They were able to meet payroll. They were able to make some ex- expansion plans and, and see those through. So I would tell you what I've learned is that, um, you know, with a little bit of knowledge well applied, it can do an awful lot of good in a lot of places. I have a lot of financial advisors who listen to my show, and I receive uh, many emails from people who have either thought about or have become financial advisors because of radical personal finance. I'd like you to share uh, what was your path through this industry to where you are today? Where did you start? Uh, what were the career turns that led to your current practice? I uh, came out of graduate school, was hired by a life insurance company, went to work in their home office. Uh, and my job was to um, what was called advanced underwriting. I worked with agents that uh, would go out on a death claim, and uh, we had bought a Boston money manager, and I would design the investment plan for the widow and the children so they could continue to live in uh, what was um, a lifestyle they, they were accustomed to. Also, we had some Fortune 100 uh, companies that had uh, their executives, we we uh, counseled their executives in uh, the use of stock options and retirement plans and how to tactically use uh, what was available in those days uh, to help them uh, get to a retirement where they would live a comfortable retirement. So after a few years of that, uh, there was a company in Atlanta that I met some of the people. They hired me away. I uh, came to Atlanta, uh, worked with them for a while, met my two future partners there. We did, we uh, left after a few years. They were having financial difficulty. We were not. And uh, we started a firm and for 25 years uh, grew that, uh, became very successful. Uh, and then back in 2000, um, I decided that I would sort of downsize my life, if you will. It's fun running a firm with uh, uh, 30 people and, and uh, you know, growing assets, but uh, you kind of get away from what you love, um, and, and you spend a lot of time in administration and uh, HR issues with, with folks. And so now I've got uh, four people, and we have... Uh, 65 clients, um, and it's very manageable and, and uh, really enjoy what I'm doing. How old are you now? I've enjoyed all of them. I've enjoyed all of them, but I really enjoy what I'm doing now. How old are you now? I am uh, going to be 69 on Saturday. <laughs> Congratulations. Do you, uh, Thank you. Do you intend to retire? I don't. Um, you know, it's a wonderful business in that... Uh, it's very much a lifestyle business. Uh, I was uh, played uh, four days of golf at a golf tournament at a resort last week. Um, you know, I, I go on trips whenever I want to. I've got a great staff. They're very tolerant of that. <laughs> uh, we've got great clients. Um, so it's a, it's a wonderful lifestyle business, but it also turns me on enough that I want to continue doing it as long as I'm able. And, um, I think I'm still, um, sh- sharp enough, um, uh, uh, that I can do it. I'm healthy. 
So as long as that continues, I'd like to continue working. Um, I'm not, retirement for me is not attractive. Um, I, I like doing it two or three or four days at a time, but not uh, forever. <laughs> in working with your client base, um, who's in probably a, an age range bracketing yours by 10 years below and 10 years above, if, if normal, uh-huh. if the normal yep. experience yep. of a financial advisory practice is, is, is applicable. Um, what have you seen? Have you traced any threads of retirement from those that you've watched uh, retire? Have you found that most of your clients who've been able to retire haven't wanted to? Have you found that some of them have been very enthusiastic about it? What have you learned about retirement from watching your clients? I'll tell you what I um, uh, learned from actually uh, a client of mine, spouse of a client. She said, uh, we always have the conversation about uh, how long am I going to work? And, um, you know, I have young people here that that, uh, work with the next generation and also uh, give some comfort, like uh, you were referring to when you were in your 30s working with retirement, retired people. Uh, or those about to retire, uh, they're comfortable working with younger people because they know they're going to be around. Uh, so I have that here. But here's one thing I learned that uh, the more uh, I see this, the more uh, right she is. Um, and she said, you know, what I have found is that uh, people that work for themselves typically don't want to retire. People that work for a large corporation, a financial institution, um, where someone else is making this decisions for them and telling them where they need to be on Wednesday and, and their metrics they have to, to meet, no such things. Those people are anxious to and really enjoy retirement. And uh, I've seen that played out more ever since she said that. I've been very aware of that. I would tell you most of the ones that I have that love retirement, don't do anything to play golf, work out, and uh, go out to dinner are those that work for large corporations. Yeah, my own my own anecdotal experience, more limited than yours, would would corroborate that. That's why mm-hmm. I think that the mm-hmm. simplest way to retire is simply <laughs> first get control of your life with your own with your with, get a little bit of autonomy over your daily comings and goings. And all of a sudden, you think to yourself, "Well, this is this is what I wanted. <laughs> this is what I was after." Yeah. Even yeah. just going from managing 30 people to managing four people, uh, I mean, you would have, I guess, feel free to disagree, but if you were still trying to manage an office of 30 people and, and you're trying to meet growth targets and you're trying to expand from 30 to 60, um, that wouldn't be nearly as fun as you're having, as much fun as you're having now. And you'd be much more likely to want to hang up your hat and, and turn in your calculator. I think you're right. I think there's a big difference uh, the, the farther you get removed from uh, – client, the client contact. Yeah, definitely. Patrick, are you, when you look at the financial advice business with 30 years of, of exposure, uh, are you optimistic about some of the trends? Are there things that concern you? What's your perspective on the overall industry? I would say I'm optimistic. I would say that because um, there are more people with more wealth. Uh, there are more challenges. The, uh, I can tell you that every year I've been in this business, I can always reference the recently uh, changed tax laws. You, you can make that statement every year because 
uh, Congress meets every two years. They either tweak or totally change uh, tax laws. That's always a challenge. So what was done five years ago uh, is not appropriate today, perhaps. Um, so that, that keeps it interesting and, and, and makes it worthwhile to engage in financial planning. And I think this whole issue of transfer to uh, the next generation, you know, this current generation is uh, the richest on the, that ever existed on the planet in terms of per capita wealth. And uh, it's a worldwide phenomenon. And, and how they go about that and, and some of the issues we talked about earlier about uh, what's an appropriate amount for children and, and uh, how do you train them up to uh, be good stewards of this money. All of that, I think, offers continuing and even expanding opportunity for financial planning. Patrick, tell us, uh, so you're in Atlanta. Uh, go ahead and tell us about your yep. firm, your book. Uh, do you work with clients across the sure. country? So if anyone's interested, go ahead and share how they can get in touch with you if, if they're interested in engaging with you. Sure. I'm in Atlanta. It's Ren Wealth Management, R-E-N-N is the way you spell my last name. And there is a website, renwealth.com. Also, the book is entitled Finding Your Money's Greater Purpose. And there is a website money's greater purpose. And if you visit that website, you'll see some information about the book, about me. You can download a free chapter. You can get in touch with me by email. You can join our um, mailing list and um, I'll periodically uh, update you on, on items that uh, I feel are important. But those are the two main methods uh, renwealth.com and moneysgreaterpurpose.com. I hope that you can see the value that a good financial advisor can bring in a situation. I encourage you, if you are in a stage, I'm happy to help good guys. Um, I can't personally endorse Patrick. All I know from him is of him is what you heard on the interview. But he certainly sounds competent to me. If you're in the Atlanta area, uh, that's where his practice is based. Feel free to check with him. Or if you want a consultation, he might be a good guy who can help you with some of your charitable needs. My hope in profiling, I know many of you who listen to the show are younger financial advisors or or who are people who uh, aspire to be financial advisors. And my hope on profiling Patrick today is to encourage you to focus on the actual value that you bring to a client. Uh, it's not just a matter of, of selling a product. It's a matter of making a plan work. And when you do it, you build these lifetime relationships that can just dramatically transform uh, – you can transform people's lives. And that's the cool side of the business. It's, it's tough to build. But once you're there, it can be a lot of fun, even as you hear Patrick's, uh, Patrick's story. Uh, he's doing well, and he's having fun, and he's 69 years old, and he doesn't want to retire. And that, to me, is the dream life. And notice what we talked about with retirement. All those themes corroborated again. Never talked to Patrick before what you heard. About 30 seconds before the interview, told him a little bit about me, and then we hit start. Uh, I didn't even correspond with him. I corresponded with his publicist. But just notice the themes that we talk about on this show every day, just jumping out from his vicarious experience with his clients and figure out how to apply them to your life. Hope this interview has been useful to you. Hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, I, I intend if you were if you had your mind lost by what is a charitable remainder trust or what's a charitable lead trust or what's a donor advised fund, um, I will, over the course of Radical Personal Finance, I will cover each of those topics in depth uh, and 
Some of you have been frustrated with the paucity of in-depth financial planning uh, discussions on the show. I understand that. I would like to have them back. I like doing them. Um, I'm sorry. I'm doing the best I can, um, and I've got to solve – I got to solve some of the back end um, things first. Since I'm doing the best I can, those shows are very time consuming. I'm doing everything I can to get to them, and I'll, I, I will get them. I will get to them in the course of the show. I promise you that. If you want to support the show, radicalpersonalfinance.com/slash/patron, and I am out of music. See you all soon.